Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Scanners Live in Vain by Cordwainer Smith. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. Scanners Live in Vain is a science fiction novelette by Paul Leinbarger using the pen name of Cordwainer Smith. The story is set in his Instrumentality of Mankind Future History. It was originally published in the magazine Fantasy Book in 1950. It was judged by the Science Fiction Writers of America to be one of the finest short stories prior to 1965, and was included in the anthology of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 1, 1929 to 1964. This was Leinbarger's first published SF story as an adult, and the first appearance of the Cordwainer Smith pen name. It was written in 1945 and had been rejected by a number of magazines before its acceptance and publication in Fantasy Book in 1950. It was in that obscure magazine that it was noticed by SF writer Frederick Pohl, who, impressed with the story's powerful imagery and style, subsequently republished it in 1952 in the more widely read anthology, Beyond the End of Time. Part of the appeal of the story was in its uniqueness, from the strange future world to its cynical ending. Robert Silverberg called it one of the classic stories of science fiction and noted its sheer originality of concept, and its deceptive and eerie simplicity. The story is set circa AD 6000. Humanity has colonized planets around other stars, but interstellar travel is constrained by the mysterious first effect, which causes the great pain of space and induces a death wish in humans. Passengers on interstellar voyages are stored in cold sleep, while the crew of the spaceship is composed of Habermans, convicts and other riffraff who have undergone an operation in which the brain is severed from all sensory input except from the eyes. This blocks the pain of space but puts them somewhere between human and machine with zombie-like behavior and disturbed psyches dependent on constant monitoring and adjustment of their vital functions via implanted dials and regulatory instruments. The Habermans are supervised in space by scanners who undergo the operation voluntarily they're permitted, unlike the Habermans, to monitor themselves and are respected by themselves and others as essential to keeping the space lanes open and uniting the Earths of mankind. The scanners live a horribly lonely and difficult life, punctuated by brief intervals of cranching, use of a device that temporarily restores normal neural connectivity. They compensate by maintaining a fanatically elitist confraternity with secret rituals and body language absolute loyalty, and a demand for autonomy maintained by the threat that no ships go if they are not obeyed and honored. This story is specifically about Scanner Martell and a case of conscience that he faces in his duties. And now, Scanners Live in Vain. Prologue Scanners Live in Vain by Cordwainer Smith Prologue Martel was angry. He did not even adjust his blood away from anger. He stamped across the room by judgment, not by sight. When he saw the table hit the floor, and could tell by the expression on Lucy's face that the table must have made a loud crash, he looked down to see if his leg were broken. It was not. Scanner to the core, he had to scan himself. The action was reflex and automatic. The inventory included his legs, abdomen, chest box of instruments, hands, 
arms, face, and back with the mirror. Only then did Martel go back to being angry. He talked with his voice, even though he knew that his wife hated its blare and preferred to have him write. I tell you, I must cranch. I have to cranch. It's my worry, isn't it? When Lucy answered, he saw only a part of her words as he read her lips. Darling, you're my husband. Right to love you. Dangerous. Do it. Dangerous. Wait. He faced her, but put sound into his voice, letting the blare hurt her again. I tell you, I am going to cranch. Catching her expression, he became rueful and a little tender. Can't you understand what it means to me to get out of this horrible prison in my own head, to be a man again, hearing your voice, smelling smoke, to feel again, to feel my feet on the ground, to feel the air move against my face? Don't you know what it means? Her wide-eyed, worrisome concern thrust him back into pure annoyance. He read only a few of the words as her lips moved. Love you. Your own good. Don't you think I want you to be human? Your own good. Too much. He said. They said. When he roared at her, he realized that his voice must be particularly bad. He knew that the sound hurt her no less than did the words. Do you think I wanted you to marry a scanner? Didn't I tell you we're almost as low as the Habermans? We're dead, I tell you. We've got to be dead to do our work. How can anybody go to the up and out? Can you dream what raw space is? I warned you, but you married me. All right, you married a man. Please, darling, let me be a man. Let me hear your voice. Let me feel the warmth of being alive, of being human. Let me. He saw by the look of stricken dissent that he had won the judgment. He did not use his voice again. Instead, he pulled out his tablet from where it hung against his chest. He wrote on it using the pointed fingernail of his right forefinger, the talking nail of a scanner, in quick, clean-cut script. Please, darling, where's the cranching wire? She pulled the long, gold-sheathed wire out of the pocket of her apron. She let its field sphere fall to the carpeted floor. Swiftly, dutifully, with the deft obedience of a scanner's wife, she wound the cranching wire around his head, spiraling around his back and chest. She avoided the instruments set in his chest. She even avoided the radiating scars around the instruments, the stigmata of men who had gone up and into the out. Mechanically, she lifted a foot as she slipped the wire between his feet. She drew the wire taut. She snapped the small plug into the high burden control next to his heart reader. She helped him to sit down, arranging his hands for him, pushing his head back into the cup at the top of the chair. She turned then, full face toward him, so that he could read her lips easily. Her expression was composed. Ready, darling? She knelt and scooped up the sphere at the end of the wire, stood erect calmly, her back to him. 
He scanned her and saw nothing in her posture but grief, which would have escaped the eye of anybody but a scanner. She spoke. He could see her chest muscles moving. She realized that she was not facing him and turned so that he could see her lips. Ready at last? He smiled a yes. She turned her back to him again. Lucy could never bear to watch him go under the wire. She tossed the wire sphere into the air. It caught in the force field and hung there. Suddenly it glowed. That was all, all except for the sudden, red, stinking roar of coming back to his senses, coming back across the wild threshold of pain. One. When he awakened under the wire, he did not feel as though he had just cranched. Even though it was the second cranching within the week, he felt fit. He lay in the chair. His ears drank in the sound of air touching things in the room. He heard Lucy breathing in the next room, where she was hanging up the wire to cool. He smelt the thousand and one smells that are in anybody's room. The crisp freshness of the germ burner, the sour sweet tang of the humidifier, the odor of the dinner they had just eaten, the smells of clothes, furniture, of people themselves. All these things were pure delight. He sang a phrase or two of his favorite song. Here's to the Habermen up and out, up oh and out oh, up and out. He heard Lucy chuckle in the next room. He gloated over the sounds of her dress as she swished to the doorway. She gave him her crooked little smile. Well, you sound all right. Are you all right, really? Even with this luxury of senses, he scanned. He took the flash-quick inventory which constituted his professional skill. His eyes swept in the news of the instruments. Nothing showed off scale beyond the nerve compression hanging in the edge of danger, but he could not worry about the nerve box. That always came through cranching. You couldn't get under the wire without having it show on the nerve box. Someday the box would go overload and drop back down to dead. That was the way a Haberman ended, but you couldn't have everything. People who went to the up and out had to pay the price for space. Anyhow, he should worry. He was a scanner, a good one, and he knew it. If he couldn't scan himself, who could? This cranching wasn't too dangerous. Dangerous, but not too dangerous. Lucy put out her hand and ruffled his hair, as if she had been reading his thoughts, instead of just following them. But you shouldn't have. You really shouldn't. But I did. He grinned at her. Her gaiety still forced, she said. Come on, darling. Let's have a good time. I have almost everything there is in the icebox all your favorite tastes, and I have two new records just full of smells. I tried them out myself, and I even like them. And you know me. Which? Which what, you old darling? He slipped his hand over her shoulders as he limped out of the room. He could never go back to feeling the floor beneath his feet, feeling the air against his face without being bewildered and clumsy, as if cranching was real and being a Haberman was a bad dream. But he was a Haberman, and a scanner. You know what I meant, Lucy. The smells which you have. Which one did you like? On the record. 
Well, she said judiciously, there were some lamb chops that were the strangest things. He interrupted. What are lamb chops? Wait till you smell them, then guess. I'll tell you this much. It's a smell hundreds and hundreds of years old. They found about it in the old books. Is a lamb chot a beast? I won't tell you. You've got to wait. She laughed as she helped him sit down and spread out his tasting dishes before him. He wanted to go back over the dinner first, sampling all the pretty things he had eaten, and savoring them this time with his now living lips and tongue. When Lucy had found the music wire and had thrown a sphere up into the force field, he reminded her of the new smells. She took out the long glass records and set the first one into a transmitter. Now, sniff. A queer, frightening, exciting smell came over the room. It seemed like nothing in the world, nor like anything from the up and out. Yet it was familiar. His mouth watered. His pulse beat a little faster. He scanned his heart box. Faster, sure enough. But that smell, what was it? In mock perplexity, he grabbed her hands and looked into her eyes and growled. Tell me, darling. Tell me or I'll just eat you up. That's just right. What? You're right. It should make you want to eat me. It's meat. Meat? Who? Not a person, she said knowledgeably. A beast. A beast which people used to eat. A lamb was a small sheep. You've seen sheep out in the wild, haven't you? And a chop is part of its middle. Here. She pointed at her chest. Martel did not hear her. All his boxes had swung over toward alarm, some to danger. He fought against the roar of his own mind, forcing his body into excess excitement. How easy it was to be a scanner when you really stood outside your own body, Haberman fashion, and looked back into it with your eyes alone. Then you could manage the body, rule it coldly even in the enduring agony of space. But to realize that you were a body, that this thing was ruling you, that the mind could kick the flesh and send it roaring off into panic, that was bad. He tried to remember the days before he had gone into the Haberman device, before he had been cut apart from the up and out. Had he always been subject to the rush of his emotions from his mind to his body, from his body back to his mind, confounding him so that he couldn't scan? But he hadn't been a scanner then. He knew what had hit him, and the roar of his own pulse he knew. In the nightmare of the up and out, that smell had forced its way through to him, while their ship burned off Venus, and the Habermans fought the collapsing metal with their bare hands. He had scanned them. All were in danger. Chest boxes went up to overload and dropped to dead all around him as he moved from man to man, shoving the drifting corpses out of his way as he fought to scan each man in turn, to clamp vices on unnoticed broken legs, to snap the sleeping valve on men whose instruments showed that they were hopelessly near overload. With men trying to work and cursing him for a scanner, while he, professional zeal aroused, fought to do his job and keep them alive in the great pain of space, he had smelled that smell. It had fought its way along his rebuilt nerves, past the Haberman cuts, past all the safeguards 
of physical and mental discipline. In the wildest hour of tragedy, he had smelled aloud. He remembered it was like a bad cranching, connected with the fury and nightmare all around him. He had even stopped his work to scan himself, fearful that the first effect might come, breaking past all Haberman cuts and ruining him with the pain of space. But he had come through. His own instruments stayed and stayed at danger, without nearing overload. He had done his job and won a commendation for it. He had even forgotten the burning ship. All except the smell. And here the smell was all over again. The smell of meat with fire. Lucy looked at him with wifely concern. She obviously thought he had cranched too much and was about to Haberman back. She tried to be cheerful. You'd better rest, honey, he whispered to her. Cut off that smell. She didn't question his word. She cut the transmitter. She even crossed the room and stepped up the room controls until a small breeze flitted across the floor and drove the smells up to the ceiling. He rose, tired and stiff. His instruments were normal, except that heart was fast and nerves still hanging on the edge of danger. He spoke sadly. Forgive me, Lucy. I suppose I shouldn't have cranched. Not so soon again. But, darling, I have to get out from being a Haberman. How can I ever be near you? How can I be a man, not hearing my own voice, not even feeling my own life as it goes through my veins? I love you, darling. Can't I ever be near you? Her pride was disciplined and automatic. But you're a scanner. I know I'm a scanner, but so what? She went over the words like a tale told a thousand times to reassure herself. You are the bravest of the brave, the most skillful of the skilled. All mankind owes most honor to the scanner who unites the earths of mankind. Scanners are the protectors of the Habermans. They are the judges in the up and out. They make men live in the place where men need desperately to die. They are the most honored of mankind, and even the chiefs of the instrumentality are delighted to pay them homage. With obstinate sorrow, he demurred. Lucy, we've heard all that before, but does it pay us back? Scanners work for more than pay. They are the strong guards of mankind. Don't you remember that? But our lives, Lucy, what can you get out of being the wife of a scanner? Why did you marry me? I'm only human when I cranch. The rest of the time, you know what I am. A machine. A man turned into a machine. A man who has been killed and kept alive for duty. Don't you realize what I miss? Of course, darling, of course. He went on. Don't you think I remember my childhood? Don't you think I remember what it is to be a man and not a Haberman? To walk and feel my feet on the ground? To feel decent, clean pain instead of watching my body every minute to see if I'm alive? How will I know if I'm dead? Did you ever think of that? Lucy, how will I know if I'm dead? She ignored the unreasonableness of his outburst. Pacifyingly, she said, Sit down, darling. 
Let me make you some kind of drink. You are overwrought. Automatically, he scanned. No, I'm not. Listen to me. How do you think it feels to be in the up and out with the crew tied for space all around you? How do you think it feels to watch them sleep? How do you think I like scanning? Scanning, scanning month after month. When I feel the pain of space beating against every part of my body, trying to get past my Haberman blocks, how do you think I like to wake the men when I have to and have them hate me for it? Have you ever seen Habermans fight strong men fighting and neither knowing pain, fighting until one touches overload? Do you think about that, Lucy? Triumphantly, he added, can you blame me if I cranch? and come back to being a man just two days a month? I'm not blaming you, darling. Let's enjoy your cranch. Sit down now and have a drink. He was sitting down, resting his face in his hands, while she fixed the drink, using natural fruits out of bottles in addition to the secure alkaloids. He watched her restlessly and pitied her for marrying a scanner, and then though it was unjust, resented having to pity her. Just as she turned to hand him the drink, they both jumped a little when the phone rang. It should not have rung. They had turned it off. It rang again, obviously on the emergency circuit. Stepping ahead of Lucy, Martel strode over to the phone and looked into it. Vomacht was looking at him. The custom of scanners entitled him to be brusque, even with a senior scanner, on certain given occasions. This was one. Before Vomack could speak, Martel spoke two words into the plate, not caring whether the old man could read lips or not. Cranching. Busy. He cut the switch and went back to Lucy. The phone rang again. Lucy said gently, I can find out what it is, darling. Here, take your drink and sit down. Leave it alone said her husband. No one has a right to call when I'm cranching. He knows that. He ought to know that. The phone rang again. In a fury, Martel rose and went to the plate. He cut it back on. Vomacht was on the screen. Before Martel could speak, Vomacht held up his talking nail in line with his heart box. Martel reverted to discipline. Scanner Martel, present and waiting, sir. The lips moved solemnly. Top emergency. Yes, sir. Sir, I'm under the wire. Top emergency. Sir, don't you understand? Martel mouthed his words so he could be sure that Vomacht followed. I am under the wire. Unfit for space. Vomacht repeated. Top emergency! Report to your central tie-in! But, sir, no emergency like this. Right, Martel. No emergency like this ever before. Report to tie-in. With a faint glint of kindliness, Vomack added. No need to decranch. Report as you are. This time it was Martel whose phone was cut out. The screen went gray. He turned to Lucy. The temper had gone out of his voice. She came to him. 
She kissed him and rumpled his hair. All she could say was, I'm sorry. She kissed him again, knowing his disappointment. Take good care of yourself, darling. I'll wait. He scanned and slipped into his transparent air coat. At the window, he paused and waved. She called. Good luck. As the air flowed past him, he said to himself, This is the first time I've felt flight in eleven years. Lord, it's easy to fly if you can feel yourself live. Central tie-in glowed white and austere far ahead. Martell peered. He saw no glare of incoming ships from the up and out. No shuddering flare of space fire out of control. Everything was quiet, as it should be on an off-duty night. And yet, Vomact had called. He had called an emergency higher than space. There was no such thing. But Vomac had called it. 2. When Martell got there, he found about half the scanners present, two dozen or so of them. He lifted the talking finger. Most of the scanners were standing face to face, talking in pairs as they read lips. A few of the old, impatient ones were scribbling on their tablets and then thrusting the tablets into other people's faces. All the faces wore the dull, dead, relaxed look of a Haberman. When Martell entered the room, he knew that most of the others laughed in the deep, isolated privacy of their own minds, each thinking things it would be useless to express in formal words. It had been a long time since a scanner showed up at a meeting cranched. Vomact was not there. Probably, thought Martell, he was still on the phone calling others. The light on the phone flashed on and off. The bell rang. Martell felt odd when he realized that of all of those present, he was the only one to hear that loud bell. It made him realize why ordinary people did not like to be around groups of Habermans or scanners. Martell looked around for company. His friend Chang was there, but was busy explaining to some old and testy scanner that he did not know why Vomact had called. Martell looked further and saw Parisiansky. He walked over, threading his way past the others with a dexterity that showed he could feel his feet from the inside and did not have to watch them. Several of the others stared at him with their dead faces and tried to smile, but they lacked full muscular control and their faces twisted into horrid masks. Scanners knew better than to show expression on faces which they could no longer govern. Martell added to himself, I swear I will never smile unless I'm cranched. Parisiansky gave him the sign of the talking finger. Looking face to face, he spoke. You come here cranched? Parisiansky could not hear his own voice, so the words roared like the words on a broken and screeching phone. Martel was startled, but knew that the inquiry was well meant. No one could be better natured than this burly pole. Vomac called, top emergency. You told him you were crunched? Yes. He still made you come? Yes. Then all of this, it is not for space? You could not go into the up and out? You are like ordinary men? That's right. 
Then why did he call us? Some pre-Haberman habit made Parisiansky wave his arms in inquiry. The hand struck the back of the old man behind them. The slap could be heard throughout the room, but only Martel heard it. Instinctively, he scanned Parisiansky in the old scanner. They scanned him back. Only then did the old man ask why Martel had scanned him. When Martel explained that he was under the wire, the old man moved swiftly away to pass on the news that there was a cranched scanner present at the tie-in. Even this minor sensation could not keep the attention of most of the scanners from the worry about the top emergency. One young man, who had scanned his first transit just the year before, dramatically interposed himself between Parisiansky and Martel. He dramatically flashed his tablet at them. Is Vomacht mad? The older men shook their heads. Martel, remembering that it had not been too long that the young man had been a Haberman, mitigated the dead solemnity of the denial with a friendly smile. He spoke in a normal voice, saying, Vomacht is the senior of scanners. I'm sure he could not go mad. Would he not see it on his boxes first? Martel had to repeat the question, speaking slowly and mouthing his words before the young scanner could understand the comment. The young man tried to make his face smile and twisted it into a comic mask, but he took up his tablet and scribbled, You're right. Chang broke away from his friend and came over, his half-Chinese face gleaming in the warm evening. It's strange, thought Martel, that more Chinese don't become scanners. Or not so strange, perhaps, if you think that they never fill their quota of Habermans. Chinese love good living too much. The ones who do scan are all good ones. Chang saw that Martel was cranched and spoke with voice. You break precedence. Lucy must be angry to lose you. She took it well. Chang, that's strange. What? I'm cranched and I can hear. Your voice sounds all right. How'd you learn to talk like, like an ordinary person? I practiced with soundtracks. Funny you noticed it. I think I'm the only scanner in or between the earths who can pass for an ordinary man. Mirrors and soundtracks. I found out how to act. But you don't... No, I don't feel or taste or hear or smell things any more than you do. Talking doesn't do me much good, but I notice that it cheers up the people around me. It would make a difference in the life of Lucy. Chang nodded sagely. My father insisted on it. He said, you may be proud of being a scanner. I'm sorry you are not a man. Conceal your defects. So I tried. I wanted to tell the old boy about the up and out and what we did there, but it didn't matter. He said airplanes were good enough for Confucius and they're good enough for me too. The old humbug he tries so hard to be a Chinese when he can't even read old Chinese. But he's got wonderful good sense, and for somebody going on 200, he certainly gets around. Martel smiled at the thought. In his airplane? Chang smiled back. This discipline of facial muscles was amazing. A bystander would not think that Chang was a Haberman, controlling his eyes, cheeks, and lips by cold intellectual control. The expression had the spontaneity of life. Martel felt a flash of envy for Chang when he looked at the dead, cold face of Parisiansky and the others. He knew that he himself looked fine, 
but why shouldn't he? He was crashed. Turning to Parisiansky, he said, Did you see what Chang said about his father? The old boy uses an airplane. Parisiansky made motions with his mouth, but the sounds meant nothing. He took up his tablet and showed it to Martel and Chang. Buzz, buzz, ha, ha, good old boy. At that moment, Martel heard steps out in the corridor. He could not help looking toward the door. Other eyes followed the direction of his glance. Vomacht came in. The group shuffled to attention in four parallel lines. They scanned one another. Numerous hands reached across to adjust the electrochemical controls on chest boxes, which had begun to load up. One scanner held out a broken finger, which his counter-scanner had discovered, and submitted it for treatment and splinting. Vomack had taken out his staff of office. The cube at the top flashed red light through the room. The lines reformed, and all scanners gave the sign meaning present and ready. Vomack countered with the stance signifying, I am the senior and take command. Talking fingers rose in the counter gesture. We concur and commit ourselves. Vomack raised his right arm and dropped the wrist as though it were broken in a queer searching gesture, meaning any men around, any Habermans not tied, all clear for the scanners. Alone of all those present, the cranched Martel heard the queer rustle of feet as they all turned completely around without leaving position, looking sharply at one another and flashing their belt lights into the dark corners of the great room. When again they faced Vomac, he made a further sign. All clear, follow my words. Martel noticed that he alone relaxed. Others could not know the meaning of relaxation, with the minds blocked off up there in their skulls, connected only with the eyes, and the rest of the body connected with the mind only by controlling non-sensory nerves and the instrument boxes on their chests. Martel realized that, crashed as he was, he expected to hear Vomack's voice. The senior had been talking for some time. No sound escaped his lips. Vomack never bothered with sound. And when the first men to go up and out went to the moon, what did they find? Nothing, responded the silent chorus of lips. Therefore they went further to Mars and to Venus. The ships went out year by year, but they did not come back until the year one of space. Then did a ship come back with the first effect. Scatters, I ask you, what is the first effect? No one knows. No one knows. No one will ever know. Too many other variables. By what do we know the first effect? By, by the, the great, great path, path of space, space, came the chorus. And by what further signs? By, by the, the need, need, oh, the, the need, need for, for death. Vomack again. And who stopped the need for death? Henry Haverman conquered the first effect in the year three of space. And scatters, I ask you, what did he do? He made the Habermans. How, O oh scatters, are the Habermans made? They are made with the cuts 
The brain is cut from the heart, the lungs. The brain is cut from the ears, the nose. The brain is cut from the mouth, the belly. The brain is cut from desire and pain. The brain is cut from the world, save for the eyes, save for the control of the living flesh. And how, O oh, scatters, is flesh controlled? By the boxes set in the flesh, the controls set in the chest, the signs made to rule the living body, the signs by which the body lives. How does a Haberman live and live? The Haberman lives by control of the boxes. Whence come the Habermans? Martel felt in the coming response a great roar of broken voices echoing through the room as the scanners, Habermans themselves, put sound behind their mouthings. Habermans are the scum of mankind. Habermans are the weak the cruel, the credulous, and the unfit. Habermans are the sentence to more than death. Habermans live in the mind alone. They are killed for space, but they live for space. They master the ships that connect the earths. They live in the great pain while ordinary men sleep in the cold, cold sleep of the transit. Brothers and scanners, I ask you now, are we Habermans or are we not? We are Habermans of the flesh. We are cut apart, brain and flesh. We are ready to go to the up and out. All of us have gone through the Haberman device. We are Habermans then. Vomack's eyes flashed and glittered as he asked the ritual question. Again, the chorused answer was accompanied by a roar of voices heard only by Martel. Haberman, we are, and more, and more. We are the chosen, who are Habermans by our own free will. We are the agents of the instrumentality of mankind. What must the others say to us? They must say to us, you are the bravest of the brave the most skillful of the skilled. All mankind owes most honor to the scanner who unites the earths of mankind. Scanners are the protectors of the Habermans. They are the judges in the up and out. They make men live in the place where men need desperately to die. They are the most honored of mankind and even the chiefs of the instrumentality are delighted to pay them homage. Vomack stood more erect. What is the secret duty of the scanners? To obey the instrumentality only in accordance with scanner law. What is the second secret duty of the scanner? To keep secret our law and to destroy the acquirers thereof. How to destroy? Twice to the overload, back and dead. If Haberman die, what the duty then? The scanners all compressed their lips for answer. Silence was the code. Martel, who, long familiar with the code, was a little bored with the proceedings, noticed that Chang was breathing too heavily. He reached over and adjusted Chang's lung control and received the thanks of Chang's eyes. 
Vomacht observed the interruption and glared at them both. Martell relaxed, trying to imitate the dead, cold stillness of the others. It was so hard to do when you were cranched. If others die, what the duty then? Vomac asked. Scanners together and form the instrumentality. Scanners together accept the punishment. Scanners together settle the case. And if the punishment be severe, then no ships go. And if scanners not be honored, then no ships go. And if a scanner goes unpaid, then no ships go. And if the others and the instrumentality are not in all ways at all times mindful of their proper obligation to the scanners, then no ships go. And what, ho scatters, if no ships go? The earths fall apart. The wild comes back in. The old machines and the beasts return. What is the known duty of a scanner? Not to sleep in the up and out. What is the second duty of a scanner? To keep forgotten the name of fear. What is the third duty of a scanner? To use the wire of Eustace Cranch only with care, only with moderation. Several pairs of eyes looked quickly at Martel before the mouthed chorus went on. To cranch only at home, only among friends, only for the purpose of remembering, of relaxing, or of begetting. What is the word of the scatter? Faithful, though surrounded by death, what is the motto of the scatter? Awake, though surrounded by silence, what is the work of the scatter? Labor, even in the heights of the up and out. Loyalty, even in the depths of the earth. How do you know a scanner? We know ourselves. We are dead, though we live, and we talk with the tablet and the nail. What is this code? This code is the friendly ancient wisdom of scanners, Briefly put, that we may be mindful and be cheerful by our loyalty to one another. At this point, the formula should have run, we complete the code. Is there a work or word for the scanners? But Vomax said, and he repeated, Top emergency! Top emergency! They gave him the sign, present and ready. He said, with every eye straining to follow his lips, some of you know the work of Adam Stone. Martel saw lips move, saying, The red asteroid, the other who lives at the edge of space. Adam Stone has gone to the instrumentality, claiming success for his work. He says that he has found how to screen out the pain of space. He says that the up and out can be made safe for ordinary men to work in to stay awake in. He says that there need be no more scanners. Belt lights flashed on all over the room as scanners sought the right to speak. Vomack nodded to one of the older men. Scanner Smith will speak. Smith stepped slowly up into the light, watching his own feet. He turned so that 
They could see his face, and he spoke. I say this is a lie! I say that Stone is a liar! I say that the instrumentality must not be deceived! He paused, then in answer to some questions from the audience, which most of the others did not see, he said, I invoke the secret duty of the scanners! Smith raised his right hand for emergency attention. I say that Stone must die! <laughs>